I don't think it's appropriate to go through a grieving process when there are still so many questions. I don't see how it's possible. It's too big. How are you meant to get your head around it? How are you meant to get your head around the fact that your son's died and your other children have been taken from you? And then, on top of all of that and dealing with all of that, you've then got to deal with the police coming along and saying, well, well, actually, we think you're to blame. Not a life I'd wish on anyone. Cookie is a woman we represent as part of the Women's Justice Initiative at the Centre for Criminal Appeals. We are a non-profit law practice who specialise in wrongful convictions, and my job is to investigate the cases of women who we believe to have suffered a miscarriage of justice. This is the final episode of our three-part series, so if this is your first time listening, we suggest you go back to the beginning and start there. Cookie's baby son, Petey, tragically died in 2002, and a year later, Cookie was convicted and sentenced to life in prison for allegedly smothering him. She has spent more than a decade in prison for a crime she has consistently maintained that she did not commit. So how do you try to overturn a wrongful conviction when you don't have any money to pay for lawyers and medical experts? And how do you rebuild a life after 14 years in prison? This is Surviving Injustice, Untold Stories of the Wrongfully Convicted, a podcast from the Centre for Criminal Appeals. At the beginning of each of these episodes, I tell you that we at the Centre for Criminal Appeals represent Cookie. But what exactly does that mean? understand that, you need to understand the criminal appeal system in England and Wales, so bear with me while I whistle through how the system works. After you've been convicted of a crime, you can ask for an appeal hearing straight away on the basis that a mistake got made, or you can appeal it later if you find fresh evidence. Now, as you heard in part two, Angela Cannings, a mother convicted of the murder of her two infants, was exonerated on the same day Cookie was convicted. Now this set a legal precedent that meant that Cookie was granted leave to appeal, but her appeal was refused. Now if you lose your appeal, the last place for you to turn is the Criminal Cases Review Commission, or the CCRC. They are the miscarriage of justice watchdog that is the only place that has the power to refer cases back to the Court of Appeal. Now the CCRC are not able to consider arguments or grounds for appeal that have already been considered by the court, And so you must apply to them with fresh evidence that your conviction is unsafe or new legal arguments. Cookie's previous legal team submitted an application to the CCRC on her behalf in 2008. And they submitted fresh evidence from a consultant histopathologist whose report on the evidence stated that it wasn't possible to rule out meningitis as a possible cause of Petey's death. It took a year for the CCRC to consider the case. But in the end, they took the view that there wasn't a real possibility of the Court of Appeal quashing her conviction on the basis of this new evidence. Since taking on Cookie's case, we at the centre have been looking for ways of uncovering fresh medical evidence that will allow us to bring a new application for the CCRC to consider. But this is not easy, in no small part because sudden infant death syndrome is still not adequately understood. 
but the science does seem to be advancing to give us a perspective on the evidence. But we are a charity, and we struggle to get funding for expert reports and convincing busy and eminent scientists to look at a complex case like cookies for free is a challenge. And this is understandably frustrating for Cookie. What do you think it will take to clear your name? I don't know if my name will ever be cleared. Because there will always be people that think I was guilty. There always will. So I don't think it's possible to ever get your name 100% cleared. I think there's a possibility I may get more answers as to what happened to my son. As for getting the answers, I think there are certain questions that still need investigating. I still want to know the implications of my son's enlarged thymus. I have considerable concerns about one of the CPS medical experts, one of their witnesses. So there are a number of things I'd like explored. Do you think with the passage of time and the advancement of medical science, an answer to why PT died might appear down the line? I don't know if we'll ever get a definite answer as to why he died. I think that further down the line, there's a high chance we'll get a probably, probably died as a result of, or probably played a factor in his death. But I don't think I'll get 100%. How does it feel knowing that there's no certainty at the end of the tunnel? As a parent, you live with uncertainty anyway, don't you? Every time your child goes out the door, you've got uncertainty. Every time they wake up, every time they go to sleep, you've got uncertainty. It's part of life, you know? Nothing is certain. And I used to believe it was. I used to be certain that my children would grow up. And then one of them dies and all of a sudden, nothing is certain. And you kind of get used to living in limbo. I'm not saying it's easy, but you do get used to it. Are you not angry? Somewhere, are you not angry? I'm not happy that I did 14 years in prison. But tell me what anger would achieve. I know that may seem odd because I've been wrongly convicted and my son died and my other children got taken off me. What can I gain from being angry? So what is appealing your conviction about for you? Appealing my conviction is about getting recognition for my son. My son... My son's perfect, you know. People need to realise how loved and how valued he was. My other children need to know how valued and loved they are and were. They need to know how secure we were as a family unit. How happy I was with the three of them. They need to know that there is not one second of that period that I didn't love. And Peter needs to have peace. He needs all the questions to stop. He needs for his spirit to finally be able to rest. 
So that's what it's about. A conviction for murder in England and Wales comes with a mandatory life sentence. And every life sentence comes with what's called a minimum term, known as a tariff, that the convict must serve in prison before being considered for release. Cookie's tariff was set at 12 years. However, due to her refusal to do offending behaviour courses that required her to admit guilt, Cookie did not make parole at her first hearing. She ended up serving two years longer than she would have had she not maintained her innocence. And so 14 years later, Cookie is finally back in the community. Right, so I know we're on a busy road outside your house, um, but tell me what it's like to be walking around outside again with cars going by and having your freedom back you know the first time I stepped out of a prison and I'm walking along the road and I'm I'm noticing patterns on trees and the different shapes of leaves and the colour of the different smells you know and there's just so much and it's oh you've got a ladybird they're meant to be lucky apparently ah there we go <laughs> yeah, ladybirds are meant to be lucky. I've been out of prison now since December last year. So, so what? Eight, nine months? What happens is um, they tell you that you're being released the next morning and they've come and done paperwork with you. So as a lifer, I have a life licence, which dictates what I'm allowed to do for the rest of my life. So I've had to sign that the day before. Um, read through it and sign it and then they explain to you about where you've got to live because after a life sentence you go to a hostel rather than back home I went to a hostel um, to help me settle and rehabilitate with support still there and um, the morning of my release I had to try and limit all of my possessions into two bags and one suitcase 14 years of life into two bags and one suitcase yeah Some people are collected by family from the prison gate. I wasn't. Um, Myself and my bags and suitcases went on the train. And it's almost overwhelming with the amount of things that there are to look at and to see uh, again that you've not had as part of your life for so long. And that's before you start dealing with people and technology and shops and everything. And people pay with things on their phones now as well. You know, and... My friend's just got something called a contactless um, debit card. Don't understand it. I had to have it explained to me how to do um, a self-service checkout. It reminds me of all the things I take for granted. You know, the world, when you're in it, changes creepingly and you sort of keep up. But of course, if you've been kept away from it for all those years, yes, suddenly it's... that, it must be quite overwhelming. There's so much of it that you have to take in. There's a park just there. Apparently everyone's been watching Love Island this year. I wasn't even aware it was on. 
you know. I've no idea what the programme's about, but apparently we'd all been watching it. <laughs> it's not, you know, I somehow missed out on a whole section of the oh, world. It's a nationwide obsession. Bizarre. I don't understand it. I don't understand music. They'll talk about music and they'll ask me if I've heard a piece of music or they'll throw out a name and they'll say, oh, you know this one. I have no idea who you're talking about. I don't appear to be part of that world. I've missed out. What's the, what's the most surprising change in the world that you've observed since you've been inside? The lack of change. <laughs> That's the biggest. You know, you're, you're away for 14 years and you kind of hope that when you come out, some of the things might have improved. You know, and you come out and the stories you've been hearing while you've been inside about the way the environment is, the way the benefit system works, the lack of funding in, in, in the NHS, the conditions some of our pensioners are having to live in, and the amount of people on the poverty line. And you come out and you realise that nothing's changed for the better. You'll hear people talk about how bad things are in another country without realising how bad things are in their own country. Did you think about getting in touch with your family at all when you got released? A conviction doesn't just affect the person that's wrongfully convicted. It affects everyone. And each person has to manage it the way that they think is best for them and their family unit. No, my family didn't know I was getting released. They didn't know that I'd got my parole. It's a reminder that although conversations about Love Island and contactless credit cards may seem lighthearted, the reality is that Cookie has missed out on much, much more. She has two adult children who were very young when she first went to prison. She has limited contact with her family, but we want to stress, and as you've just heard, Cookie doesn't blame them for this. Prison sentences are served by more people than just the prisoner, and the breakdown of relationships with friends and family is just another part of surviving a miscarriage of justice. In a similar case to Cookie's that I already mentioned in part two, Sally Clark was wrongfully convicted of the murder of her two infant sons, but in 2003, she was exonerated on appeal after serving three years of her life sentence. But her tragic story didn't end there. Her family said she never recovered from her ordeal, and in 2007, she died from acute alcohol intoxication. This is a grave reminder that we cannot underestimate the impact that the death of a child, combined with the trauma of a wrongful conviction and a long prison sentence, has on the parent accused. Cookie has tried to commit suicide in prison on multiple occasions, and her mental health is a constant concern. Think about how you would cope if life dealt you this hand. Would you keep fighting? Who would stand by you? I don't think it's appropriate to go through a grieving process when there are still so many questions. I don't see how it's possible. Have I grieved? No. Have I grieved partially? No. I don't think you can ever grieve for a child that dies. I don't think any human body has the ability to cry as many tears as you need to. People say that time heals. It doesn't. Over time, you learn to hide it. You learn to manage it. You learn to cope with it. You never recover from it. 
and the gaping wound never heals. It doesn't even lessen. You just learn to hide the pain better because you have to function, you have to do things. I've not been back to my home area since my conviction because of the trauma I'd been through there. The memories and still trying to clear my name. I am planning on going back to my home area in a couple of weeks to see my best friend. Uh, I don't imagine it will be easy. My best friend has always believed in my innocence. I've only just got back in touch with them after 14 years. So it's a lot of catching up to do. I do think memories are going to resurface, I won't say that. In prison, when you're maintaining innocence, you have to become, for your own safety, you have to become somewhat isolated and private. And there's only a couple of people you let through that wall you put up. And when you've spent 14 years with that wall, that wall's very hard to take down. And I'm not comfortable with people. Um, I don't flinch anymore like I used to. When people got too close, I used to flinch. I don't go out of my way excessively to avoid people. I just know that on a bad day I'm not setting foot outside my house. <laughs> I've learnt to judge when I'm having a bad day and I've learnt to take precautions if I do need to go out. There are certain things I need to do and certain things I need to be aware of and I'm not comfortable going anywhere for any length of time unless I have a safe space that I can go and hide in. I find it very hard, despite how it seems now, I find it hard to talk to people. I find it hard to interpret and understand body language, facial expressions and things like that. I can struggle with that quite a lot. When you get out of prison, you're not classed as a prisoner maintaining innocence, you're classed as an ex-prisoner. And all ex-prisoners were obviously guilty, otherwise they wouldn't have been there. That's how people see it. So you say you're an ex-prisoner and it's like, oh, what did you do then? Hi. Nice day. Nice day. Yeah. Lovely. Yeah. It's very nice. It is lovely. This room, yeah, very nice day. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> six weeks or nine, very nice. Uh, yeah. yeah. Everybody likes School it. holidays, yeah, good yeah. weather. Enjoy. Thank you. Thank you. You know, it's kind of strange when people talk to you and you think, would they still talk to me if they'd known I'd done 14 years wrongly convicted? Would they still talk to me if they knew what I'd been accused of? You know, it's, it's very strange. There are only 12 prisons that hold women in England, and during her 14 years inside, Cookie spent time in a total of eight of them. Moving prisons is often done with little warning or support, and this disruptive practice is common. And having spent a third of her life in prison, Cookie has strong opinions on the failings of the system and how it needs to change. Cookie, do you think that it's just the innocent that deserve our compassion in the criminal justice system? No, not at all. The justice system, it's not fit for purpose, as far as I'm concerned. We have too many people going into prison, doing short sentences that disrupt their family units, disrupt their finances, be that benefits or employment, throws a whole load of other issues into play, such as their housing situation, health care, mental health. And they're doing a short sentence, which isn't actually gaining anything. They're not in the prison system long enough to do any deemed relevant courses. They're not 
there long enough to engage with mental health services or to engage with recovery from drug and alcohol abuse. So they're not actually there for any length of time that is going to be of benefit to them and in turn society. And it does a lot of damage. Those that are in prison for longer periods of time, they still need compassion because of the way the prison system works. I don't agree with the fact that in a prison environment, if you work, you are not paid minimum wage. There's no point doing 30 hours a week for peanuts. It lets our prisoners be used as slaves by big corporations that are making money from our prisoners when our prisoners are in appalling conditions. I was talking to a workman the other day, actually. He came to do some painting at the flat next door to mine. And we were having a chat, waiting for paint to dry. And I asked him if he was aware of how much the prison system impacts on his life. And he told me that it doesn't at all. So I just took one example. And I said to him, you know, in the prison system, the healthcare is private healthcare. They've got the contract with the prison service because they claimed they could do healthcare at the cheapest rate. The way they do it at the cheapest rate is by when they see a patient, they tell them to take two paracetamol and go away. Uh, that's the general rule of them. Or sometimes they'll say, come and see me next week, but you can't get an appointment for the next week. You're lucky if you can get one for the next month. And what then happens is that those people, when they're released, their health condition has worsened to the extent that the amount of input it now needs is a lot more costly. But the private healthcare in the prison don't care because they're not the ones footing the bill. The NHS is footing the bill. All of these people that are getting poor healthcare in prison, thanks to a private system, are coming out of prison with severe health needs and are doing a massive impact on the NHS. The government looked for a cheap contract that would save money and what it's doing is it's costing everybody else a lot on the NHS. And that's just one way that the justice system affects the people that aren't directly involved in it. I strongly believe, confront the power if you would resist. Don't sit back and say the justice system isn't working. Don't sit back and say we've got too many people wrongly convicted, we've got too many people on pointless sentences, we've got too many courses that aren't proven to work. Get out there and do something about it. Get out there, challenge, question, sign petitions, encourage people to talk. Even if you're not going on protest marches, just talking about it with your neighbours, your friends down the pub. Five minutes even. You're making a start. We need to be confronting. We need to be doing more than just saying this is wrong. We need to be changing what is wrong. We spent two days recording Cookie's story and the past two and a half years working on her case. Part of our work at the centre is to amplify the voices of people who've been poorly served by the criminal justice system. Cookie did not get to tell the jury her side of the story at her trial, or address the judges who decided her fate at the Court of Appeal, and so we wanted to give Cookie that chance now. Whatever conclusions you reach as a listener, we believe it's important that you reach them with Cookie's voice weighed in the balance. Trying to process and do justice to her life has been a daunting task. We've been struck by her humour, resilience and warmth, and we've been inspired by her insightful and erudite way of talking about her case and the system. And while this is the final episode of our three-part series, we are unable to wrap things up neatly. Life is messy and sprawling and rarely fits into neat conclusions, let alone just ones. Cookie is still very much living the aftermath of what happened to her, 
and this has come with many dark moments, not all of which we've shared with you. But now, sitting together on a bench in a nondescript English park, we turn to her future. How do you begin to rebuild a life from the wreckage? I don't think it's healthy to make plans. I'm very much a believer that man makes plans just to give God a laugh. Having said that, I have done a lot of writing over the years and at the moment I'm talking with a publishing house about one of my series of manuscripts Um, and I do want to work. I want to have the time and the space to be able to work. So at the moment I'm in the process of applying to do a correspondence course on proofreading and copy editing. So I can do that from home. So, yeah. That's where the thinking's at at the moment. And eventually I would like to move out of a one-bedroom bedsit in a basement and move into somewhere slightly more above ground (laughs) with less problems. (laughs) And I guess one of the things I do have to face is that what I've been through hasn't been particularly beneficial to my mental health. So at some point I am going to have to deal with all of that right from the beginning three wishes do they have to be realistic? no Okay. three wishes truthfully I wish that my son had peace I wish that my other children were happy and I wish that nobody else were where I am it would be so great to be able to wave a wand and stop wrongful conviction Surviving Injustice is a podcast from the Centre for Criminal Appeals and is produced and edited by Lizzie Norton, Mae Robson and me, Naima Sakande. Thank you to Jake Tyler, who created our logo. If you're curious about what the Centre for Criminal Appeals does and perhaps are inspired to donate to our work, please do check out our website at www.criminalappeals.org.uk. We are a charity and are only able to keep representing people like Cookie through generous support from donors like you. And the money helps us to pay for things like expert evidence and additional investigation into wrongful convictions. We have a Christmas appeal live at the moment with The Big Give, and we would be so grateful if you would consider donating. Or perhaps you can help us in another way. We are urgently seeking a pathologist with an expertise in infant deaths, who is willing to take a fresh look at Cookie's case. If you or someone you know may be interested in helping, please reach out and get involved by emailing us on mail at criminalappeals.org.uk. Help us get to the bottom of this case. If you want to know more about Cookie, you can find photographs and some of her poetry and writing also on our website under the podcast tab. She is a talented poet, so I recommend taking a peek. And this is our first time telling stories in this way, and we would love your feedback. Did you enjoy the series? What could we have done better? Make sure to follow us on Twitter at C4CrimAppeals, 4 is the number 4, uh, or we now have an Instagram page, or shoot us an email. We would love to hear from you. Until next time. Since 
Since recording this podcast, we are pleased to say that Cookie's been accepted onto a highly sought-after training program for aspiring justice campaigners. We have no doubt she will make a fearsome advocate for reform and are excited to see what she will do with it.